Last week, we completed our look at the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Aren't we thankful that the Apostle John included this conversation in his gospel? If he wouldn't have included it, we would never know about it. Because John recorded this encounter, we have scriptures such as, unless a man is born again, pardon me, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And another scripture, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. We also get one of the most concise presentations of the gospel, of course, in John 3.16, probably the most famous, for lack of a better word, verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel in a nutshell. But in our message last week, we spent most of our time considering the eternal, unseen reality that lay behind the visible, physical realities in the works and words of Jesus Christ, even as far back as Genesis 1.26. The culmination of this teaching appears in verses 14 and 15 of John 3, where Jesus recalls the bronze serpent lifted up by Moses in the wilderness, and how that points to the coming atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. I mentioned that it can be difficult for us to accept or wrap our our minds around a bronze serpent being a type of the crucified Savior. But when we consider that the serpent is bronze, a type of judgment, and also the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, then the picture comes together. When we look at Jesus Christ hanging there on the cross with eyes of faith, we see there the wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ because he took onto himself every sin I have ever committed, am committing, or will commit, and received God's judgment in my place that I might be reconciled to God in him. And so... The world hates us because it hated him first. The world hates the light. If you truly shine as lights in the world, expect passionate pushback from the world and its systems. Still, let Christians be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden so that the love of God, the love that God has for the world will draw at least some to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was our message last week. This message for this week I've entitled, He Must Increase. And I was just visiting with Mike a little bit about this this morning. And uh, John the Baptist says these words, I must decrease, he must increase. And in a sense, that should be a motto for every believer in every situation, at every moment. Uh, We so often want to rise up and get in the way, don't we? Um, but like John the Baptist, I think we have some things to learn about humility there. So let's read the remainder of John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the true and living God. After these things, 
Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing in Enon near, near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning that is true. We can anchor our lives to it. I pray that by your spirit especially, you would minister to the hearts of those that are grieving here this morning and also for Steve and Cindy, uh, wherever they may be on the road or, or um, whether they've arrived, I'm not sure. But we just pray that um, it is your words and your spirit that would minister to their hearts this morning. And as we look into your word for the rest of us here this morning, that you would uh, reveal yourself to us through it, that we would be uh, not only um, given the gift of understanding what you're teaching us here, but also the courage to live it out as we go from this place. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing the circuit. I've done something, I've done something like this <clears throat> every now and again uh, because I think it's important. Um, you might not think so. That's okay. You're down there and I'm up here, so... Um, and that is to just kind of bring the Bible a little bit alive to us this morning, because we can sometimes forget that these aren't just stories that someone's telling. They are events that someone's recording. This story about John the Baptist is often overlooked, this particular one, <clears throat> because it follows right after on the heels of the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, which is so well known. But this story is so human. It's, we, we can just relate to it immediately when we read it. And it's, it's just real. It really warrants our attention, I think, this morning. And so to emphasize the reality of the story, I would like to begin <clears throat> the sermon this week by giving us all a visual 
of Jesus' public ministry so far. Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth at about the age of 29 or 30. I think the next slide that comes up should be a picture of ancient Nazareth. And so there's a path. That path is very ancient. Um, Who knows? It could have been the path that Jesus walked out of Nazareth uh, when he left the town. We don't know. It's very likely he spent time in that area. So at the age of about 29 or 30, he left. He went to where John was baptizing at a place called Bethabara, which is east of the Jordan River. Now, uh, you can see that they've put up some buildings and put some stairs in, but that particular uh, spring that's there um, is still there, and Christians use it, Christians of all types use it for baptizing still. So that's where Jesus would have gone and encountered um, John the Baptist, or a place very much like that. It was interesting, it was closed for a long time, until 1996 or 7, because um, because of the um, the wars around Israel, there were too many landmines there. So they swept the landmines out now. A person can go visit. I don't recommend going right now. I, I recommend that we be in prayer about um, what's happening in Israel and, and the Gaza Strip in particular. Tremendous amount of suffering happening there. And of course, it's always the innocents that suffer most. But in any case, um, this is north of Jerusalem, north of Gaza, northeast of Gaza, Quite a ways. Um, Anyway, that's where Jesus would have uh, gone and encountered John the Baptist, uh, Bethabara. Um, To go from Nazareth to Bethabara is about a five or six hour walk at an average pace. So about eight for me. And so uh, once Jesus had encountered John and been baptized here and collected a few disciples from that area, he went back um, almost the same path. Um, to a town called Cana for what was probably a family wedding. And I think I have a picture of modern-day Cana. There's Cana. Um, Old Cana would have been much, much smaller. Uh, But that's what Cana would have looked like as Jesus was coming down the hill into that town to go to the wedding that he was invited to. Um, So again, about five or six hours walk back to Cana um, where he turned water into wine. Somewhere in that picture is where Jesus did that miracle. It's actually very near Nazareth. It's not far. And so, like I said, it'd be about five or six hours for most of you to walk, eight for me. From there, because the Passover was drawing close, Jesus and his disciples headed south to Jerusalem. Now, I brought up not a modern-day picture of Jerusalem because uh, if you bring up a modern-day picture of Jerusalem, what you see is the Dome of the Rock, that big golden dome there in the city. That was where uh, the temple used to stand. So as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, it would have looked a lot more like this. So you can see the temple complex there. It's very large, covers about 35 acres. That's where Jesus would have cleared out uh, all the animals and the people that were buying and selling. Would have taken quite a bit of effort and quite a bit of time to get that all done, but uh, it seems that he did. So heading south to Jerusalem, This is about an 80 or 85 kilometer um, walk if you were to go in a dead straight line, so probably longer than that. It was generally a two-day journey, walking about 10 hours a day or so. So when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, to this place, he cleanses the temple. Afterward, uh, he meets Nicodemus. um, And then the text says that Jesus takes his disciples afterwards 
into the Judean countryside where he again encounters John the Baptist. So it seems as though uh, John has moved south toward Jerusalem as well, uh, continues his ministry of baptism. Jesus leaves Jerusalem, goes to the countryside to a place called Enon, which means fountain, uh, near Salem. We're not sure exactly where this place is, but there is good evidence to suggest that it is near Jericho, which is west of the Jordan River. Uh, again, this is about a five or six hour walk from um, Jerusalem. So um, this is where many people think that spring arose where John would have been baptizing at that time. Real places, a real time, a real person doing real things. John learns that Jesus is baptizing with his disciples. Maybe a little ways up the road, we're not entirely sure. So Jesus, together with his disciples, did a work of baptizing similar to that of John the Baptist. It is important to note at this point that Jesus himself did not baptize, but he left that to his disciples. And we learn that in verse 2 of chapter 4. If you want to flip over the page, you'll see that Jesus himself didn't do it, but as the leader of that particular uh, band of Galileans, uh, he was sort of in charge of what was going on. I think Jesus did this as a safeguard to ensure nobody would eventually take pride that they were baptized by the Lord himself and somehow considered themselves special. So Jesus didn't himself baptize. Apparently, John the Baptist was uh, doing important enough work in his ministry that Jesus acknowledges and even affirms John's baptism by doing a similar work of baptism. It seems as though this baptism of John and Jesus at that time was a baptism of repentance, which we've talked about in some past sermons, but it appears Jesus continues to add depth of meaning to John's baptism, culminating in the baptism recognized and practiced by Christians today. To be sure, in different denominations, baptism is understood and practiced differently, with some uh, doing uh, rites of infant baptism, others doing believer's baptism. That's probably the biggest divide. But the modes of baptism also vary widely from sprinkling to pouring to immersion. In this church, we practice baptism by immersion, and we'll touch on this a little bit later today. Having said that, we must keep in mind the words Jesus spoke to Nicodemus back in Jerusalem. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We must never confuse the physical with the spiritual, the shadow with the reality, or the type with its unseen fulfillment. Having said that, there may be those of you sitting here this morning, in fact, I'm quite sure of it, that were baptized by, say, sprinkling or pouring rather than by immersion, which I believe is the biblical pattern, immersion. What's important about baptism is not so much the method, but the unseen reality that lies behind baptism. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who forgives your sin and reconciles you to God through his death and resurrection, then you have been buried with him in baptism by the Spirit of God, and raised to walk in newness of life. So 
although I believe the biblical pattern for baptism is immersion upon the confession of faith, you will never catch me dismissing or disparaging your baptism if the church you were at practiced a different mode of baptism at the time of your public profession of faith. I've read enough church history and seen enough of the conflict over the details of baptism over the centuries um, I've seen sufficient of it to think that somehow I have all the answers surrounding baptism is a pipe dream. In fact, the more I study the scriptures and read the church's ideas develop around baptism, the more I refine my own view, which is different today than it was even five years ago. Take note that John the Baptist is still baptizing. Even after his encounter with Jesus, at some point, John would be thrown in prison for defying the political leadership of his day, and he would eventually be beheaded. But until that, pardon me, until that time, John continued the work God had given him to do as the last and greatest Old Testament prophet, paving the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that the reason John and Jesus were baptizing in this area is because there was much water. When we first encountered John the Baptist, he was using the Jordan River to baptize those who came to him in repentance. It seems as though he has moved south and toward Jerusalem and found another place where there was much water in order to baptize. If John were simply pouring or sprinkling water on people, even the smallest of wells would have been sufficient. When we combine this historical and geographical fact with a few other details in the New Testament, it is good grounds, I believe, to believe that baptism, the baptism practiced by John and Jesus was a baptism by immersion, similar to what we have recently done down at the Nechako River. In Acts chapter 8, God brings about a meeting between the apostle Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch once the eunuch understands the gospel through Philip's explanation of the passage that he was reading in the book of Isaiah, the eunuch desires baptism. So let's actually read that passage, Acts chapter 8, verses 36 and 39. And what I'm just touching on here is the method of baptism that was used by the apostles. Acts chapter 8, 36 through 39. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And he baptized him. Now, when they came up, out of the water. The spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Seems pretty plain there. They had to go down into the water and they had to come up out of the water. That was how Philip understood what baptism was. Paul's words in Romans chapter 6 verse 4, all roads lead to Romans, also imply baptism by immersion. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. It's a picture, but it's a clear one, I think. 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The apostle says something similar over in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It is texts like these that persuade me that in the very early church, the practice of baptism by immersion upon the confession of faith is the biblical pattern. This is not nearly the whole picture, but it can, at least for us in here, can be a starting point. What happens after this? Verses 25 and 26, the Jews tried to cause division. There's a textual variant in here. Some, if you read the King James or the New King James, it'll say that uh, John's disciples had a dispute with the Jews. Um, Most other translations say that John's disciples had a dispute with a Jew. Uh, It doesn't matter to the meaning of the text, but I just thought I'd point that out depending on the translation you're reading. It doesn't change the story at all. I know I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it here again because it's important. When John, the author of the gospel, talks about the Jews, he is referring to the ruling class of Jews, those that sold out their souls to Rome in order to keep their wealth and power. They were often outwardly very religious, but inwardly corrupted. At one point, Jesus even calls them whitewashed tombs. So it appears in verses 25 and 26 of today's text that these Jewish elites were trying to cause trouble between Jesus and his disciples on the one hand and John the Baptist and his disciples on the other hand. What methods did they use? What can we learn? So a dispute arises. There are some principles in this text that give us warning about how the enemy can create divisions between people particularly amongst believing people, but in other areas of our lives as well. I think we would do well to recognize these tactics and absorb the wisdom of God's word so that we might avoid these kinds of divisions. So what is the enemy's strategy in this case? The strategy of those that are opposing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing they do, find a topic that is central to the lives of those you are trying to divide. The Jews observed that the disciples of Jesus and John were both performing baptisms. Baptism being a purification ritual focused around repentance and preparing for the arrival of the kingdom of God, the doctrine of purification. So they keyed in on purification as their dividing point. Number two, Find a weak spot to introduce your ideas. The Jews went to the disciples of John. They certainly didn't go to Jesus or to John. And they probably observed someone like Simon Peter as a kind of leader of Jesus' disciples who had a very strong personality, was utterly devoted to Jesus Christ. They probably looked at Peter and said, hmm, let's find someone else to talk to. So they approached John's disciples and instigated a dispute in the hopes of dividing 
these very popular wilderness rabbis. Our enemy knows that dividing comes before conquering. Number three, drive in the wedge of envy. The Jews, in essence, say to John's disciples, look over there. They have way more people coming to them for baptism than you do. What are you going to do about that? Look at the language John's disciples bring to him. All are coming to him. They bought it, hook, line, and sinker. All are coming to him instead of to us. They have been intentionally provoked to jealousy. The ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist had grown quite large by this point. The average everyday Jew was drawn by the simple but powerful message of the truth of the gospel that God was bringing through these two prophets. That made them a threat to the ruling elite. If the Jews couldn't control the masses through fear and coercion, their power and their wealth were in peril. It was time for them to divide and conquer using the wedge of envy. Before we move into the final 10 verses of today's text, it is important to understand the atmos- what the atmosphere was like in Judea at that time. Because of Daniel's prophecy, way back in chapter 9 of his book, there was kind of a Messiah fever amongst the people at this time. The people knew that the coming of Messiah could be any day, and they were on high alert looking for the promised one. In many ways, this was driving large numbers of people to go to John the Baptist for his purification ritual in anticipation of the coming of the kingdom of God. Within a very short time of Jesus' life, there were even 20, there were, there were at least 20 men who stood up claiming to be the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Of course, only one of them rose from the dead. But the disciples of John the Baptist are seeing the large crowds of people leaving John and going to Jesus. So when they brought their concerns to John, what did John say? He said, hmm, maybe we should stop singing the old psalms and take up some more contemporary music in order to stay more relevant. Or maybe he said, maybe we should offer more programs to draw bigger families into our fellowship. Maybe we should put together a worship team of some sort and purchase the king of all instruments, the drums. Maybe we should dim the lights and crank the music and flood the stage with the Holy Spirit fog because we just bought a new fog machine. John was on top of what needed to be done to get people back into following him rather than that guy down the road. I think you know that John said none of these things. And I'm so thankful. We can't afford a fog machine here. (laughs) What he did say, though, is a lesson to the church. So let's look at it. What is John's answer? Verses 27 through 30. John's disciples seemed alarmed. They were alarmed. But it didn't seem to bother the prophet one bit. John would not allow envy or the fickle crowds to make him forget his commission. He had been given a commission by God, and that was what he was going to do. And that was to announce 
that the Messiah had come and then to step back and exalt him. Let's look at John's humility. Having heard the concerns of his disciples, John says these words, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You know, when I first looked at those words, I thought, I think he's exaggerating. And I thought that until I actually started thinking about the words. Wow. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. How many of us actually believe this statement? Oh, we say that we believe this statement. It's scripture. Of course, I believe this statement because that's what people do on Sunday morning. But saying we believe is one thing. Actually believing something is something altogether different. This is a principle that is found throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, but the Apostle Paul addressed it as well. In adult Sunday school last year, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth needed a lot of correction in those early days. At one point, Paul writes to the Corinthians these words. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. There's some words for us. That none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Jealousy, envy. For who makes you differ, differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Same principle. Later in his life, Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate, just before he was condemned to death by crucifixion. Pilate was getting annoyed with Jesus because Jesus wasn't answering his questions, at least not the way Pilate wanted. So at one point, Pilate says to Jesus, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered with words that Pilate had never encountered before in his life. Jesus answered with a few simple words. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. I guess Pilate didn't like those words very much because people don't like the truth in many cases. Even the most powerful rulers have nothing unless it is given them from above. This principle will keep your feet planted firmly on the ground whether you have little or whether you have much. Let's look at John's testimony. John knew what his role was probably more keenly than most, because he was commissioned by God to be his prophet. John didn't minimize his role, but he didn't exalt it either. John had told them before, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. We read that in chapter 1. But John had come to prepare the way for the Messiah. 
understanding that he could keep his proper place, not too high, thinking he was the Christ, and not too low, thinking he had no place or call in God's plan. Every believer could learn a thing or two from these words of John. Listen carefully. God is not calling you to be special. God is calling you to be faithful. God is not calling you to be special. God is calling you to be faithful. We've looked at John's humility and John's testimony. Let's look at John's parable. John explained to his followers that he was like the friend of the bridegroom at a wedding. He isn't the bridegroom. By the way, by calling Jesus the bridegroom, he really was calling Jesus God. But that's a discussion for another time. As an Old Testament prophet, he was the tale of a long line of uh, representations of God. But he calls Jesus the bridegroom. But John isn't to be the focus of attention, but to make preparation for the bridegroom. Similar to today, in the Jewish wedding customs of that day, the friend of the bridegroom arranged many of the details of the wedding so that when that day came, all of the attention could be focused on someone else. In many cases, that has fallen to the maid of honor these days, but, but the, the friend of the bridegroom still does quite a bit. In those days, though, the friend of the bridegroom had many more responsibilities. He arranged the wedding ceremony, he invited the guests, he organized the food and the drink, and he was the go-between for the bride and the groom for the sake of discretion and the upholding of the bride's reputation. The friend of the bridegroom had one final, very important task to complete before his day was done, and John mentions it specifically in, in his parable. He was to guard the door of the bridal chamber once the bride entered. The friend of the bridegroom would allow no one in that chamber until the bridegroom arrived and spoke to him. Then he would allow him into the chamber, close the door, and go away rejoicing because he had done his job beginning to end. That is what John is drawing his disciples' attention to in this short parable that we find in verse 29. John could have been bitter. He could have been downcast. He could have been disillusioned. He could have been disappointed. But he chose to be joyful. This joy of mine is fulfilled. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. This should be the motto for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 30 of our text is the expression that the author is trying to emphasize around this theme of transformation. Remember, Jesus transformed the water into wine. Every story is linked to that, transform that transformation. And this is the key verse in this story. John's ministry is being transformed here, and he recognizes it and embraces it with joy. Let's look at the final six verses, 31 through 36. We'll go very quickly because much of it is overlap to the end of Jesus Nicodemus' uh, 
uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. There is a lot here at the end of chapter 3. There's no doubt about it. Um, But for the sake of time, let's just look at three key statements in these six verses. Now, we have a similar situation here at the end of chapter 3 to what we had at the end of Jesus' visit with Nicodemus. Most Bible scholars believe that these final six verses of chapter 3 are John the Apostle's commentary, the John the author's commentary on John's uh, interaction with his disciples. Uh, some people believe it's John the Baptist word still. It really doesn't matter. Regardless, we will simply approach these words as inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's all we need to know. The first phrase we'll look at, he who comes from above is above all. John says this twice. It's a simple statement. It doesn't take a genius to figure it out. Jesus is from above, and he is above all because he is God and has all authority. Even the great prophets of the Old Testament, we would never apply this statement to. Think of Moses. Someone saying, he who is from above is above. We would say Moses. That, that, that doesn't apply to Moses. As great as he was, this only applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is above all because he is God and he has all authority. The second phrase we'll look at, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. John goes on to say that no one receives his testimony. This was generally true, but of course there were exceptions. John writes that those who do receive his testimony have certified that God is true. It's kind of a strange statement. God is true. Until we understand that the Jewish concept of truth is that which corresponds with reality. God is the ultimate reality. Life will simply not make sense until you receive the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you take it to its extremes, you reject the truth of Scripture, the words of Christ, then you don't even know what bathroom to use when it says men and women. But with Christ, we get the truth. God is true. John the Apostle would later write these words in 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you have the Son? Can you truly and genuinely say that you have the Son this morning? Because if not, Scripture says that if you do not have the Son of God, 
you do not have life. I don't know if there's a clearer statement. He who does not believe God does not believe that the word of God is the word of God. And it is true. Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit without measure. In other words, not just a small amount, not just here and there, not just every now and again, but completely and entirely. This is why Jesus Christ could say, I am the truth. These are not the words of a mere man. Again, think of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Imagine Moses saying, I am the truth. We would say, Moses, no, you do not qualify to say those words. Imagine Daniel saying, I am the truth. We would say, Daniel, you've got a much too elevated opinion of yourself. But when Jesus says it, we just submit because it's true. Jesus said, I am the truth. The final phrase we'll look at, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Has given, interesting, tense there. It's called the perfect active indicative. I know you guys don't care. It means something that has happened in the past, but it is still true. It happened in the past, but it's continuing always. It's not some future or ethereal reality. The Father has given all things into the hand of Jesus Christ. It's not a future or ethereal reality. It's real. And it's true right now. And it was true then. He has given all things. How many things? Now, if you were good Pentecostals, you'd scream out, all things, amen. That's what you would do. But since you're conservative, shy types, you sat there politely, and some of you said, all things. I don't want my lips to move in case the neighbors noticed. In any case, it's true. The father loves the son. And he has given all things into his hand. Again, I ask you, do you actually believe this? Or is it just in some file in the back of your mind, waiting for certain events to transpire in the world or in your life to bring about their efficacy? You read the words and you say, well, someday... In other words, I don't really believe it. I believe that God loves the Son, but he has given all things into his hand. I don't really believe that. I'm going to file that under later. Let me tell you something. If you believe that the Father has given all things into the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to conduct yourself very differently in the world than those that are waiting for this to be true. As for me and my house, we'll trust the text of Scripture. Three practical lessons to take into the week and the days ahead. 
Number one, the story of Jesus is true. Seems obvious, doesn't it? Seems like a very obvious thing to say. But I know for myself, particularly when I was younger, I had a tendency to forget that these events that we read about in the Gospels actually happened at a real place and a real time and were faithfully recorded for us that we might know him and trust him and live out that reality where we live in our time and eventually meet him face to face in eternity. These aren't just stories. These are records of events that took place at a real place, at a real time, and they transformed the world. Number two, our enemy, pardon me, our enemy is looking for every opportunity to divide believers. How successful he will be depends on your willingness to submit to Christ as Lord. Christ must increase, and we must decrease. When this happens, our enemy's strategy of divide and conquer is thwarted as envy dissolves. We must strengthen our areas of weakness through a commitment to know and obey the word of truth. Number three, everything we do, and I'm not, not most things, not almost everything, everything we do in our lives and ministries must find their source and their perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our glory will fade. I assure you, 100%. Our glory will fade. I used to be able to play volleyball. I'm almost 50 now. I can't play volleyball anymore. I hurt myself. Probably end up in the hospital. My glory is fading, like it or not. I still have pictures of the olden days, but they're just pictures. Our glory will fade if we invest all our time and effort into bringing glory to ourselves it will all be wasted but if we invest all our time and effort into bringing glory to Jesus Christ that is an eternal investment that will only bring increase as the ages roll by it's the best investment you can make Because we will decrease and Christ will increase. Let's invest where it matters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for John the Baptist, who you brought on the scene just before the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for his ministry, the words that he spoke, the words that are recorded around his ministry. We're grateful for your work in his life because today, 2,000 years later, we can look at it, we look at the inspired words of scripture, and we can learn lessons from this great prophet who taught us not only by what he said, but by what he did, what it means to 
to be humble and faithful. And Lord, we're so grateful for these things because in everything John did, he pointed to Jesus Christ. Lord, that is who we want to be as well. We must decrease. And Jesus must increase. And we just pray that the pride that prevents this from happening would be brought before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and dealt with there because that's the only place that it can be dealt with. We just ask, Lord Jesus, that in our lives as those that have trusted you, that in everything we do, we would point toward the Lord Jesus Christ from making breakfast to hammering a nail, whatever lies in between, speaking words of truth to our neighbor, all those things would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we want at the end of our lives that we would be forgotten, but that Jesus Christ would be remembered. Because it's not about us, it's about him. And so we ask that you would work in our hearts to this end. We pray for those that are grieving once again, that you would comfort them, that you would give them joy through tears, we pray for safety for Steve and Cindy. We pray for Tyrell and Kate that you, by your spirit, would have your hand of protection over them, that, that your 10,000 chariots would surround their home and their ministry, and that the light would go forth from there. And we pray for this body of believers that we would always remain true to the word of God, that we would always proclaim that God is true. Let every man be a liar, but God be true. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.